If you have your Bibles open, we're going to be in Galatians 4 today, uh, and I'd like to thank our worship team who puts in just a ton of time and energy to use their gifts and talents to bless us, to lead us into worship, especially this time of year uh, where we have extra services. We had our Thanksgiving service this past Thursday. We have um, a special service we're going to do at the end of uh, December, and just this time of year, we, I kind of ask the worship team to put in a little extra time and energy, and they always come through, and it's just a great blessing to have uh, men and women who love the Lord and love to serve us as a church by leading us into worship. So everybody, Daniel and your whole team, thank you guys. Uh, everybody on the worship team, thank you. If you are interested in jumping in on the worship team or singing or doing special music or something, uh, please, you can use the Connect cards and fill that out or you can talk to Daniel and get him, uh, give him your info and you guys can work out and figure out how to get you up on stage blessing and, and serving our congregation. So, um, so Galatians 4. We have been walking through this book, through this letter, for the last few months, uh, and actually this Sunday, today, is going to be our final one in Galatians for a while. We're going to spend a few weeks talking about Advent as we walk into the Advent season starting next week, uh, and then we'll pick Galatians back up in the new year. Um, and so today, what we're talking about is time. Time moves constantly. It controls and really dictates everything that we do. The seconds are always ticking away, even though we somehow manipulate it with that whole daylight savings time thing where we all just collectively decide it's a different time for a while, which doesn't make any kind of sense. Time itself will never go away. It is constantly moving. And with the passing of time comes the changing of seasons. The weather changes and we experience that life, birth, or life, death, rebirth cycle as one season gives way to another. Um, but then even in our own lives, there are seasons, eras, right? We go from newborn to toddler to adolescence. Even in adulthood, we break up these times and seasons of our lives, whether it be uh, marking it by a new job or, a, or moving into a new house or a new relationship or even just the new year and that, the freshness of that New Year's Day. Now, sometimes these eras, these seasons overlap, and some may be shorter than others, but we are continually looking for and finding ways to mark the passing of time. And so this morning, as we uh, look at the first few verses of chapter 4 of Galatians, we, I have a, a couple of headings just to help keep us kind of moving forward in what Paul is saying, because he's continuing uh, an argument and an and a explanation that he's been doing throughout all of chapter 3. And so really, we have three kind of sections of time that he's going to refer to in these first few verses, and that's already, not yet, that's the time of Kairos, and now and forever. So those are kind of our key headings for this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. Uh, and do some work together in God's Word. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather, to worship you, to celebrate you, to sing your praises, to open your Word and hear from you. God, we come to you this morning with our hands empty, knowing there is nothing for us to add to our relationship with you, knowing there's nothing that we can bring to impress you, but that you ask just for us to bring ourselves. We come with empty hands asking for you to fill us. Fill us up with you. Fill us up with your presence, your grace, your mercy, your wisdom, your love, your generosity. You. We gather together, we fellowship, we, we celebrate, we we do these things on a Sunday because we want to hear and experience you. 
And so God, whatever things, baggage, hindrances, walls we have put up, things that, are, that could potentially distract us from you this morning, Lord, help us to set those things aside so that we might hear from you and engage with you. That we might not just hear your words, but then also be doers of the words, respond to what it is you are, how it is you are calling us to respond. We thank you and praise you, and Lord, we ask that as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I'll read through the passage, and then we'll go back and talk about it. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. <coughs> Excuse me. So already not yet. This is a phrase that gets thrown around in church sometimes. It means we, are, we have a certain standing with God. We have a certain relationship with God here and now through our faith in Christ. But that we don't get to full, really experience the fullness of what that means until later, until Christ comes again. That's really what that term usually means. Um, as we jump into chapter 4, I want us to remember that sometimes it, it can be easy to forget that when Paul was writing Galatians, he's writing it and he didn't write in chapter and verse, right? It's just one long letter. He didn't write in chapter and verse. Those got added later. So we separated. We have people who have gone uh, throughout history and separated and made sections and headings. Maybe your Bible has a heading on there and separated into paragraphs. That's not how this letter was written. And so when Paul writes this, he's not necessarily separating and thinking, okay, I ended chapter 3, that's one complete thought, now chapter 4, this is a whole brand new thing. No, he's just writing this letter and working all of these things out. And so chapter 3 flows logically into chapter 4. And so if you haven't been with us, just a brief recap of chapter 3. God gave Abraham a promise that through his offspring, singular, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And then later, God gave Moses the law to show us just how important that promise was. And then God fulfills both the promise and the law in the person and work of Jesus Christ as he provides for us the blessings that go with the promise of God. Those blessings flow from this new reality that we are now Abraham's offsprings, heirs, as we're going to talk about this morning. Paul gives this illustration here in the first opening verses of chapter 4, um, talking about heirs. When an heir is a child, they are no different from a slave, is what he says. Now, obviously, that's not in status, but rather in the fact that as a child, you are under the control and direction of someone else, a guardian, a uh, manager, someone to control you, someone to, to tell you what to do and not do. But even though this child is still under the direction and really control of someone else, they are still inheriting everything their parents have. All of it will go to them. And so it's more of, in theory, all of this is yours right now already, but not yet. Because in actuality, it's not yet yours. It's a delayed reality. In Roman and Greek cultures, when a son was born, 
He was raised primarily by someone outside of the family, a guardian, uh, a manager, someone who had that role to kind of raise up this child, to discipline them, to teach them uh, the ways of the world. And this lasted until, as it says in verse 2, and this is what Paul is referring to when he says, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In that culture, you didn't become a man at a specific age, right? We think about the Jewish culture, and you have the idea of the, the bar mitzvah. When you hit that certain age, now you are into manhood. But in the Greek and Roman culture, it was based on your maturity when your father believed you were ready, based on the reports given to him by the guardian, by the manager, whoever was overseeing you, when your father decided you were of the correct maturity, then you became a man. And it wasn't until that point that you were actually officially adopted or acknowledged as your father's son. You were just, yes, you were his offspring, but you weren't actually adopted into the family, considered part of the family, until you reached this age of maturity. At that point, you went from being under guardians and managers to being considered your own person. And again, this wasn't an age thing. So this could be from at a little, at a toddler age, he could wait until he was much older. It was up to the father's discretion. But at that point, whenever the father decided that date was, you were considered your own person, an adult. And now this inheritance that was yours in theory is now yours in actuality, in actual experience. The already not yet is now done. It's now here. But until that day comes, as a child, your freedom is hindered. You have the inheritance in theory, but not in experience. The guardian managers have control over the heir until maturity comes. Paul's saying this is what the law did for us and to us. It was a guardian and manager. He talked about that last week when we looked at chapter 3. It was the guardian and manager until that appointed time when it was no longer needed. It guided, it directed, it raised them. That's what Paul says in chapter or in verse 3. In the same way also, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When we were children in our understanding of God. When we were children in our experience of grace and mercy and God. When we were children in relation to understanding who Christ is and what he has come to do, before we came of spiritual maturity, we were enslaved to the elementary principles. This phrase, elementary principles, has two kind of common meanings at that time. One could refer to literally the elements, the sun, the moon, the stars. For many people, they believe those things individually and corporately should be worshipped. Still today, there are those who believe that nature is to be worshipped. But then this phrase, elementary principles, can also mean literally the elementary principles, the basics, the ABCs of existence, the, those finite, uh, grounded, original rules you learn as a child and how to interact with the world. And for the Jews, for the Jewish followers, the law was their elementary principles. It was the thing that for centuries they had been learning and studying and understanding that this is how we are to live. This is what it means to be us. For centuries, the Israelites were studying and living in light of the ABCs, the basics, the law. For centuries, they were in kindergarten, learning their ABCs so that they would be ready at the appointed time, as it said in verse 2, so that they would be ready for that when Christ came. But then Christ does come. Jesus shows up, and still they didn't want to graduate to a more intricate topic and subject. 
They liked their basics. They knew the basics. They didn't want to leave the basics. Warren Wiersbe says that the law was not God's final revelation. It was but the preparation for the final revelation in Christ. It is important that a person know their ABCs because they are the foundation for understanding all of the language. But the man who sits in a library and recites the ABCs instead of reading the great literature that is around him is showing that he is immature and ignorant, not mature and wise. To cling to our own works righteousness, to try and cling to the rules and regulations, the the legalism that defined the law, that still defines too many of us today, the do's and don'ts, the spiritual checklist mentality is to retreat into spiritual childhood rather than to grow into maturity. Paul will say in verse 8, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not God's. Enslaved. Trapped. Trapped by these things that are not God's, whether it be the sun, the moon, and the stars, or our own desire to be our own heroes and our own saviors. See, the basics are good when you are a child. They are helpful and needed. They have their place and time, but eventually it is time to grow The great John Stott says, God intended the law to to reveal sin and drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. Like anything else in the world, God made something and it was good in the law. And then Satan distorted and disguises it so that he could use it for evil. And we see the Pharisees, these Jewish leaders in the churches near Galatia, using the law for evil, using the law to try and hinder and restrict the growth of these non-Jewish believers. But a time does eventually come. This, as it said in verse 2, this date that was set by the Father. In verse 4, it's the fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come. When is that time? It's when God says it was time. It's kairos time. Kairos is, means a specific moment or season. We talk about it in Christianity in biblical terms. Kairos is it's a specific moment or season of God-appointed time. When the fullness of time had come, there is a shift, there is a change. What was that change? It's the arrival of Christ. The arrival of Jesus was not happenstance, it was not luck. Paul is saying, no, it was divine appointment. It was the fullness of time. It was specifically chosen. There's a musical written by Andrew Lloyd Webber um, called Jesus Christ Superstar. It shows a very human side of Jesus. It takes some very loose interpretations of the gospel And though it has some very catchy songs, it is very flawed in the way it portrays Jesus. Let me say that up front. But then in in that show, there's a song that Judas Iscariot is singing and and asks Jesus, basically, how much did Jesus know? He says, basically, how much did you know about your own divinity? And he asks him, why did you come in such a backwards time in such a strange land? If you'd come today, you would have reached a whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. It's an interesting question and thought exercise. Why then? Why not come now? I mean, there's more people on earth now. There's more people exist. The world is smaller in the sense of technology. Even though there's more people, it's, it's, we're more connected because of technology, right? Jesus doing a Facebook Live would go viral instantly, right? Why not show up now and show yourself to the world now? 
Why then? Why then is because that's when the fullness of time had come. Now, lots of people say, well, here's all the different reasons why it made sense for Jesus to come at that time. The Pax Romana, where there was peace because Rome had basically just destroyed everybody else, and there was peace because nobody else could start a war with him, and roads were being, tra- roads were being built, and it was, travel had become easier for that time. All these different human reasons why, logically, it made sense for Jesus to come at that time so the gospel could be spread. Paul says in Romans, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I don't know what the actual reason is. We don't know why God decided this is when Jesus is going to show up. It was the fullness of time. It was the right time. It was the kairos time. It was God's time to say now is the time for Christ to show up. We even now, though, sometimes, right, we, we look back and we play it out and we say, even though we know how it goes, even though we know that the Gospels uh, happen, that, that the church goes forward, that we see we've gotten to the point we are today as Christians, sometimes we look back and say, why then, Jesus? Why not now? It could have been so much different. It could have had a bigger impact. It could have been different. God is always on time. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is never running anywhere. He's never in a rush. If anything, oftentimes he slows himself down intentionally. He's never rushing. He's always on time. His arrival, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all of it was set at the appropriate time, at the right time, in God's timing, which is always perfect. It was then, and it still is now. That's something we need to remember as we pray to God and we ask him to move and we ask God to work and to do things and we ask him to move on our timetable. God, we ask that you would work in this way right now. And when he doesn't work in this way right now, we think he's wrong, he's bad, he's evil. Why wouldn't he do it the way we wanted him to do it? Because his timing is perfect, ours isn't. We exist second to second, minute to minute, day to day. God is outside of time. He is not bound by our temporary restrictions. And so he knows and knew when it was best for Christ to come. And when that time came, when the fullness of time came, it was time to send Christ. And that's what it says. It says God sent forth his son in verse 4. God sent forth his son. This phrase sent forth is came from where he was before, which means Jesus arrived from somewhere. He was delivered to us from somewhere. It speaks to the existence of Jesus from before he shows up on earth. He is eternal. He was there in the beginning when God said, let there be light. He will be there when everything else passes away. He will be there forever. God sent forth his son from where he was before to here he is now. He, was, he is eternal. He sent forth his son born of a woman while he existed Pre his arrival on earth, he did come, and he comes in the same way that every other human does, by being born of a woman. Now, obviously, his arrival is much different than any other human who has come before or since. It's something we'll talk about beginning next week as we enter into the season of Advent, and we talk about the miraculousness of the birth of Christ. But what Paul is doing here is emphasizing Jesus was both fully God and fully human. He was sent forth from God from where he was before. He lived and existed eternally, but he was born of a woman. He is fully human. 
And he was born of a woman under the law. He lived under the law. He had the full human experience of what it meant to be a Jew living under the law. But his was different. Because he did the one thing that nobody else could do. He knew what it was like to live under the law, yes, but he kept it perfectly. He did what nobody else could do. Why? Because the law was built to reveal in us our sin, that sin nature that all of us have. But Jesus doesn't have that sin nature. He lived perfectly. We've talked about how the law was the MRI to show us the areas, to show us the weaknesses, to show us the places where we are sick. Jesus' MRI was clean because he had no sin nature. Paul is emphasizing the fullness of Christ, his deity sent from beforehand, his humanity born of a woman, the reality of him living on this earth, living as every other human has had to live, maybe more so. And there's a purpose to all of this, he says in verse 5. Why did Jesus go through all of this? Why did he do all of this? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. to redeem those who were under the law, and even that. So the purpose of Jesus coming, the purpose of Jesus being sent from God, born of a woman, under the law, is to redeem those who were under the law. But even that has its own sub-purpose, so that they might receive adoption as sons. The purpose of Jesus coming was to redeem us. We've talked about this word in the last few weeks. Redeem means to buy back, to buy out of slavery, to buy a prisoner who has been trapped. It wasn't just a rescue mission. He didn't just sneak in and break us out. No, he paid the penalty. He did so with his life, with his blood. He paid the price. He died on the cross for our sins in our place. He did what we were supposed to do. He redeemed us. He brought us back. He bought us out of slavery. He bought us out of death. He bought us out of hell. He bought us out of the conviction that we were held under, held captive under due to sin. He redeemed us. But he doesn't just redeem us and then leave us. It's not, hey, I'm going to set you free and you're free to go do what you want. Go ahead and wander away. Wander into whatever you want. Wander into that old life. Wander back into slavery. You go do whatever you need to do. But that's what some of the Jewish leaders were trying to do was to put these new believers, these new Christians, back under the slavery of the law. They were trying to say that you had to follow the law, you had to be circumcised, you had to do these things in order to truly be a Christian. They were missing the whole point of what Christ came to do because it wasn't just to redeem us. It was, I'm going to redeem you so that you might receive adoption as sons, so that you might have a new relationship, a new identity, a whole new family system built into your life. We are redeemed so that we can be adopted because of the redemption, because Christ has set us free. We are able to be adopted. And because of that adoption, we have a new spirit in us, he says. We have a new relationship with God. Through this adoption, we are not afterthoughts. We are not second-class citizens. We are, no, regardless of your race, color, gender, education, financial status, job title, relational status, it doesn't matter who or where you come from. As we saw last week at the end of chapter 3, neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, male nor female, it doesn't matter what identity, no matter what barrier you might have had beforehand, you are fully adopted. You are a full and complete child of God with all of the rights, promises, inheritance that come with being a child of God. This is something that goes far beyond God just restoring what has been broken by sin. Because even Adam and Eve, 
Adam and Eve and God had this perfect relationship, right? Adam and Eve want for nothing. They live in paradise. They have this perfect relationship with God. They knew what it sounded like for him to walk in the garden. But even Adam and Eve were not talked about as the children of God. Not in this sense. Not in this familial, intimate sense that Paul is talking about here. Our adoption into the family of God goes well beyond God just restoring what was broken by sin. But out of his rich abundance, he, do, he goes above and beyond what we could ever imagine. What we could have ever earned or certainly what we deserve. God saved us. God redeemed us so that, we could, so that he could bring us into his family. He bought you out of slavery, not so that you could just wander your way back into living under the same slavery he just bought you out of, returning back to that lifestyle. No, he redeems us so that he can adopt us into his family, so that we can have a new relationship with him because we are his children, because we are his sons. Before we continue, I, just, I do want to say a brief word on this idea of sons and heirs that Paul uses throughout this passage. Because Paul talks about heirs and he equates it with sonship over and over. We've seen in these couple of verses. And that's because both the Jews and the Greeks did the same thing. Inheritance at that time went to the son. In Jewish culture specifically, the oldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son would get one-third. Or if there was multiple kids, it would be broken up somehow similar. But the oldest getting the lion's share. It was his and his brother's responsibility if they had a sister to take care of the sister and provide for the sister until she would be married, in which case then she would be provided for and sort of inherit her husband's inheritance. We already saw last week, we talked about how in Christ there is, again, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. It's the same grace, the same faith that has given us new life. And so while it talks about sons as heirs, ladies, I don't want you to hear that and think, well, I'm not an heir because I'm not a son. No, you are an heir just as much as anybody else. Because that distinction, that hierarchy of cultural, cultural barriers was created is no longer there in Christ Jesus. You are heirs to the kingdom. You have a spiritual sonship, as it were. So I don't want you to read this passage and get hung up on this idea that he's only speaking to the guys because that's just not what's happening here. It's kind of the same way where, you know, in Revelation, where we see Christ comes to get his bride, right? The church is the bride of Christ. And so guys don't read that and say, well, that doesn't count me because I'm not a bride. No, in actuality, what Paul is saying here is that we are all heirs, sons and daughters. We are all heirs, co-heirs with Christ in this new relation given to us by God. So the reason for Christ's coming was to redeem us and to adopt us as the children of God. And that starts right now and lasts forever. We see in verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, because you are daughters, because you are the children of God, you have been given the Spirit of God in you. That is your right. That is your birthright as a child of God, to have the Spirit of God in you. This is a real litmus test of whether or not you are truly saved, is do you have the Holy Spirit? Paul will say in Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if in the fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the question then is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you actually placed your 
have you actually, by the grace of God alone, placed your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you admitted your sinful nature and admitted your helplessness in getting out from under the wrath of God toward your sin? Have you believed that Jesus was fully God and fully man and died on the cross for your sins in your place? Have you chosen Jesus as your Savior and Lord? If you have done these things, then yes, I promise you, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Whether or not you're listening to him, whether or not you're being led by him, that's a different conversation and a different sermon, Lord willing. But for everyone who has put their faith in Christ, for everyone who has believed and put their faith and hope in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, you have the Holy Spirit in you. It is your birthright. It is given to you. It is guaranteed for you. This new reality, the right as the children of God, the Spirit in us, it is what gives us the ability to cry out, God, Abba, Father. And see, it says he, we cry out, Abba, Father. Not whisper, not timidly mumble, but full-on call out with no reservation or hesitation. Abba is Aramaic. It's, it's an Aramaic word for father, but it's more informal, more relational. Um, some will say it's daddy. I don't know if we go that far, but I think dad is, is an appropriate way of referring to it. It expresses an intimacy and a deep connection between father and son, father and daughter. Jesus is the only person in the Bible who uses this word, and rightly so. He can because he is the Son of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. Jesus is the only one. He is unique in that. But after our adoption, after our redemption and adoption, we too have a unique relationship with God. One that allows us to call him Dad. One allows us to go boldly before the throne. One that allows us, not only allows us, but it encourages us to be able to go to him with any and everything. We can go to him because we have this new relationship, this new kind of intimacy with God. The kind where your child is calling out for you in the middle of the night, it's 3 a.m., you're exhausted, and you hear on the monitor, you hear down the hall, Mom, Dad, I need you. And you get out of bed, no matter what it is, no matter, even though you know you're going to go in there and it's just, hey, I kicked my blanket off, can you put the blanket back on me? Hey, my pillow moved, I know I can touch it, but I need you to put the pillow back under my head. And you do it anyway. And when the kid calls in the middle of the night, screaming for mom, screaming for dad, they don't think twice about it. They don't contemplate the ramifications, they don't worry about whether or not mom or dad's in a good mood or a bad mood, they just know they need help. And so they know they're going to call on someone who's going to help them. They're going to call on mom. They're going to call on dad. There's no hesitancy. There's no hindering. There's no worrying. And because of the love and compassion and commitment and deep desire for that child that you have as a parent, you get out of bed and you go to them. So too, we have this ability, this right to call on God as our dad. No matter what the problem, we can call on him. And no matter what the solution needed is, he's going to respond. We have this new relationship, this new chance, this new ability, this new understanding through the Spirit to be able to call on God and relate to him in a way that we couldn't prior to being saved. Things are different now. That's what he says in verse 7. You are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What we've been talking about throughout this whole letter is that there is a freedom in Christ. 
But this idea of going back to the law, going back to works righteousness, going back to trying to win and earn and impress God, it's slavery, it's death, it's nothingness. And he says, you're no longer a slave, you're a son. Why in the world would you go back to that? Why in the world would you go back to trying to be a slave and chain yourself back up when you have been made free in Christ? The more and more I sit in this book, the more and more we read through it. And if you're, you're new with us, I guess we can take a break for the holiday season, but we've been reading through Galatians, one chapter every day, Monday through Saturday. And the more and more we do it, the more and more I'm, I'm just I'm overwhelmed by this idea that there are these, these two big concepts, even just in these first couple of chapters, these first four chapters, these two big concepts that if we could just cling to these things, that if we as Christians, as individuals and corporately as the church could, could cling to these two things, how different it would make all of the rest of the world. If we could remember and hold on to that justification, our right standing with God, our innocence before God comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. Our right standing and innocent relationship with God is grounded and founded in our faith in Christ. It is by grace alone that we can even have the chance to have faith in Christ. If we could just ground ourselves in understanding that it's not about us, it's not about what we can do, have done, will do, but it's about what Christ has already completed at the cross. It's about how good and great and perfect he is, about him going to the cross, taking on our sins so that we can have his righteousness. If we could understand that, if we could understand that our standing before God is based on nothing but the full and complete righteousness of Christ, and at the same time, hang on to this reality that we are heirs with Christ, this identity of the children of God, sons and daughters of God, if we could understand what that means, understand what, how that affects the rest of our lives, oh, how it would change everything else. And so what does it mean to be the child of God? Here's some of what that means. It means you are a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. It means that you are saints in Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It means that you are loved in Romans 8.37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It means that you are forgiven in Colossians 3.13. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive because the Lord forgave you. It means that you are heard by the Father in 1 Peter 3.12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It means you are victorious in 1 Corinthians 15.55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It means you are ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. It means you are a citizen of heaven in Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It means you have been made alive in Ephesians 2.4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And finally, I don't even have a category for this one, but 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's just scratching the surface. We could do this all day. These things are non-negotiable. They don't go anywhere. You don't, they don't change or stop. You don't grow out of these things. This is who you are. This is what it means to be a child of God. This is how God sees you and treats you and interacts with you. This is who you are, Christian. It means that these things that you have been given, these things, you didn't earn these things. You didn't win or work for them. They were given to you because of the fact that you are a son or daughter of God. And so if we could just hang on to that, if we could cling to the fact that I understand, look, I understand it's not me who has gotten me here, but because of the love and mercy of God, if we could cling on to these things, oh, how different this world would be. How different it would be for us to engage with the world around us and deal with temptations and deal with, this, and deal with relationships, deal with living in a broken, fallen world when we understand it's not about just, hey, just try harder, do better, work more, but resting in what Christ has done and what Christ has made us to be. That our identity is not based on anything that this fleeting, failing, faltering world, but rather what Christ has done for us and what Christ says that we are, who Christ says that we are. How different would our world be, our lives be, our marriages, our friendships, our jobs? Brothers and sisters, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you have put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a child of God. Rejoice and rest in that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, your word, your truth, the truth. God, for those who have put their faith in you, we ask that you would help us, help us remember, help us to never forget, to bind these things on our hearts, to let them dwell in our hearts and minds moment by moment. That we would not take for granted or lose sight of the reality of who you have made us to be. You have made us yours. You have called us and made us yours. We are your children. We are your kids. You are the good and perfect dad we can run to and go to with anything and everything. And you will hear us. You are the good shepherd, shepherd who will comfort, who will lead us, who will care for us, who will protect us. At times you're the dad who will discipline us when we need it. You know perfectly what we need when we need it. God, help us to live into that. Help us to let go of the 
individualistic, I can do it myself nonsense that we convince ourselves of. Help us take advantage of the fact that you call us your children. You have made us your children. We have this new identity, this new reality. Help us to live into it. Because it's so easy to get distracted. It's so noisy and dark here. So God, give us a hunger and thirst to come back to your word, to be reminded regularly of who you have made us to be. So we might live into that reality. Live in response to this good news that Christ came, came to be a blessing to all the nations. God, help us to live into this reality and let that good news of the gospel flow through us and filter every decision, every interaction, every thought. Because the old has passed away and the new has come. God, we ask for guidance and understanding and help in living in light of the fact that we are in creation, living in light of the fact that we have the Holy Spirit in us. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.